Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 1. If all goes well, we'll get all the way through verse 2 tonight. All the way uh, through there. So, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to begin with some background information. We're, we're going to start there and, uh, like I said, see how far we get. Uh, Galatians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is a letter. This is a letter to the Galatians. Uh, we're going to talk about who that was and that kind of thing here in just a minute. But first, we're going to talk about Paul and who he was. Now, we, we think we know Paul, and a lot of us probably do. We've read a lot of his stuff. We've heard him talked about a bunch. But let's, uh, let's get some, just some background on him right quick first. He was a strong, proud Jew. He, uh, we see that in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 of Galatians. Uh, various other places. He talks about his pedigree, and you can read that in a lot of spots. He, he was uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he was, that's the same tribe that Saul was from, Saul the king, not, not Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he talks about that in Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Uh, that should be showing up on the screen. It is so nice to have that in the back again, uh, so I don't have to keep craning my neck to see if uh, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Um, he was a strict Pharisee. Uh, that's the other thing we learn about Paul. He learned under Gamaliel. That's the He, he talks about that. Now, Gamaliel is, is an interesting character. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on him, but uh, just to give us an idea, Gamaliel was the guy who, in Acts, when the Sanhedrin wanted to get rid of the disciples... He was the one who said, hold on now, if, 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 if this is not of God, it'll die out. But if it is, who are we to stop it? That was Gamaliel. Gamaliel's grandfather was a man by the name of Hillel. Uh, and Hillel, there are two schools in Judaism that started in the, the late, uh, right at the turn from B.C. to A.D., um, that there were uh, two schools, and at the moment I cannot think of the other guy's name. Hillel was the other school. It was kind of like uh, uh, not quite Protestantism and Catholicism. It, it wasn't. It was maybe more along the lines of Baptists and Methodists. It was just two ways of interpreting things, two ways of looking at Scripture. Hillel, that's Gamaliel's grandfather. Now, here's probably the interesting part. Hillel was much more moderate. And I, I, I don't think I talked about this at Christmas. Hillel comes up at Christmas sometimes, depending on the preacher. Because it is possible, we're not certain, but it is possible that Simeon of Jesus' birth, been waiting for the baby, it is possible that that Simeon was Hillel's son. Hillel was a bit more moderate in his views of other folks. There's, there's some... Uh, uh, you, you read what Hillel wrote, and you can see, okay, it would make sense then that Simeon would recognize this baby as the Messiah. Then it also makes sense that his son, Gamaliel, might actually be a little more hesitant to say, well, hold on now, we're not going to do this to disciples because my daddy held a baby that he said was the hope of the world. I mean, he didn't, he didn't go into all this, but it's, it's interesting information. It, there's, it, nope, we can't trace it exactly. It's not guaranteed, but there's a lot of evidence that says Simeon was Gamaliel's daddy. And uh, that just brings a whole new kind of perspective to uh, who these guys were. But that's who Paul learned under. Now, we also understand that there are some scholars that say, oh, Gamaliel wasn't really Paul's teacher. Paul's lying about that, for some, uh, why he would lie about that since it's easily proven, I don't know. But they say the reason he uh, was lying because when the disciples were in court of the Sanhedrin, Paul had not yet become uh, uh, an apostle. So Paul, at that time, was out overseeing the, the, the killing of Christians. 
And here are Christians coming before the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel sits up there and says, let's, you know, let's go easy on these guys because we don't know if it's of God. There are scholars that say there's no way with Gamaliel having such a moderate view, Paul would have been such a zealot. But they don't know people then, I don't think, because it's always very easy for the second generation of someone to take their, the previous generation's views to the extreme. Now, we usually see that in a negative sense. We go back, um, I read a fascinating article, if you like psychology and sociology, on how we got to where we are as a culture and how it was actually not the 60s that put us there, but it was uh, some, some psychological results, I mean, like results of psychologists right after World War II that broke down a lot of the fabric, then that opened the door for the 60s. Now we're where we are now. So you see that, you know, we got further. It was a little, they were a little freer in the 40s and then the 50s we, and then the 60s. We really, 70s we got crazy. Now we're, well, here we are. So you see the extreme. So it's not too far to say Gamaliel said, you know, we need to give these guys some room. And Paul said, you give them room. I'm taking them out. So that's, that's a fairly easy thing to see there. Um, also, if you if we go with Gamaliel was the son of Simeon, it's just an interesting connection that Paul had to this man who, again, held the baby that Paul ended up persecuting that showed up on the Damascus Road to Paul and said, you know, why are you doing this to me? So a uh, little little of the background there to get you where uh, where Paul came from. He was of Tarsus. We see that in the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus is what he was called. Um that was the chief metropolis of the, the, the province of Cilicia. Uh, it would have had commerce, culture, and education. As a matter of fact, the, the university at Tarsus rivaled the university at Athens. So it was, it was an incredible place for Saul to grow up in. That means he was Hellenistic in culture. We're, we're a little bit ahead of you there, Pat. Uh, that means he was Hellenistic in culture. Hellenistic meant Greek. He he would have been very. Uh, he would have spoken Greek. He wrote Greek. He would have spoken Hebrew because of his Judaism. Um, but he he was very Hellenistic. He quoted their even quoted their poets. First uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty three, uh, Titus one twelve, Acts twenty seven twenty eight. These are all places where Paul in his writings. To, uh, to the folks in these churches, and he quotes their poets. I, the, probably the, the most, the one that comes to mind um, would be Titus, where he's talking about the, the folks in Crete, the Cretans, and says, even their own poets write that, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't nice, um, that their own poets didn't treat them very well. Uh, are they working back here? Okay. Uh, hey, Pat? Can you go forward a couple of clicks, please, ma'am? There we go. Thank you. Um, and being born in Tarsus, that means he was also a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship was huge, huge at this time. This was a universal passport. Go ahead and click, please, Miss Pat. Uh, this was a universal passport. Got him everywhere. Anywhere he wanted to go on these Roman roads, he could go. This is what led to, honestly, led to his death. This allowed him to appeal to Caesar. The, when the Romans, you could not be tried. You could not be, uh, you certainly could not be beaten, rather. You, you, you could be tried, but you couldn't be punished uh, at, without cause, without a trial. So when the time comes along and, and they arrest Paul for something and they beat him, I, I wish I could see the looks on the guy's faces that were beating him because he just kind of looks up and and I, I I I hope it was very casually saying, you know, y'all aren't supposed to beat a Roman citizen, right? Uh, I mean that that when, once that happened, they were in trouble. So he was able to appeal to Caesar when uh, he didn't feel like he was getting a fair trial in other places. Uh, that's. Uh, Paul was a Christian, obviously. We know, we, we've heard his conversion story on the way to Damascus. He talks about it. It's described in Acts, but then he talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He'll talk about it in Galatians. Uh, we see the story in Acts, and he, 
continues to share the story a few times in Acts to prove his, his conversion. And folks weren't real sure about that conversion, were they? Uh, they didn't really want to talk to him. Ananias didn't want to go see him um, when he got made it on to Damascus. Uh, you, you know who this Paul fellow is? And he's, yeah, now go see him. And, and uh, it, it, the fact that he was different really blew their minds. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, he was an apostle. Uh, he tells us this here. And we're going to talk about his apostleship a little bit later. Remember, the apostles, we think of the apostles as the original disciples. Uh, and, and, and they obviously did even when Paul was writing his letters. For them, the apostles were everybody but Judas. But then he calls himself an apostle and then defends it. And that's one of the things he does in Galatians. He defends his apostleship not being from having spent time with the disciples, but spending time with Jesus. I don't want to get too much into that now because Paul's going to get to it. It's one of the ways he's having to defend himself against these false teachers. They're denying his apostleship, saying he just learned... Well, yeah, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I don't want to do that. So, we'll go with that he is an apostle. So that's our background on Paul. That tells us a little bit about who he is, catches us up maybe if we've forgotten or, or told us some, uh, some new things that maybe we didn't know. Now, the, the letter uh, of Galatians is just your typical letter of the time. It's very similar to the letters he wrote, except, and I have mentioned this before, uh, there's no friendly greeting. Um, and we can look just a, a book over um, Paul, an apostle in Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Um, he says grace to you. He does that in uh, uh, as well in Galatians. Um, he, he has that uh, doxology, the blessings there in Ephesians, Philippians. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, I give thanks in verse 3 uh, to my God for every remembrance of you. It's so sweet and so nice. He's loving on them so greatly. Uh, to the saints in, in Christ at Colossae, he says in Colossians, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you. And Galatians, uh, Paul, to the churches of Galatia. That's it. He doesn't know no faithful saints, no friends of mine, no, boy, it's good to talk to you, no, I, I pray, I rejoice at every remembrance of you, none of that. This is not a happy letter he has written to Galatians, to the churches in Galatia. Um, that, that friendly greeting is gone. So let's work through the passage here. Uh, first thing, he, he gives us his name. Now, we've already, already talked about him. Uh, but the word Paul means little. Uh, and scholars debate this, and this is just extra information for you. There, there are some scholars that say absolutely Paul's name changed from Saul to Paul on the day of his conversion. And there are others who say, no, probably not. It was probably interchangeable his whole life. It was probably just a nickname they used for him. Either way, it doesn't matter. This is how he introduces himself. This is how he talks of himself and we see that Luke uses his name, uh, uh, uses Saul for a while, and then Paul. So there's something there in his name. But really, it just means little. Maybe he was small. Uh, it, it is believed that, again, we have no real reason for this other than some comments he made that he probably wasn't an attractive guy, especially as he got older, uh, that he had been beaten so much and shipwrecked and gone through so much that he was just, you know, he probably barely got around. We know his eyesight was bad. It just, he wasn't a guy that we would probably think, uh, look at and say, wow, great. I mean, his, his, his nickname was Shorty. And I don't think it was one of those ironic nicknames where he was really, really tall, but they called him Shorty. It seems like probably he was, that was just who he was. And he was okay with that. So Paul introduces himself, an apostle. Again, we're going to get to that in a minute, but it is important that he put this here because he is going to defend his apostleship. So he's laid it out right now. I'm Paul. You know me. I'm an apostle. You knew that too, but if you question it, I'll get to that here in a little while. And then he says, not from men 
or by man. Now, in his letter, he is already rebuking the false leaders. In his greeting, he's rebuking the false leaders. This this is the the beauty of Paul's writing, the, the way he would he could capture a thought, the way he could uh, put it together, that even in his uh, from Paul to Galatia, he's already telling them, look, y'all are listening to the wrong things. Y'all have been confused. Uh, and then, of course, he really lays it out in verse 6 uh, when he says he's amazed at how quickly they've turned away uh, from Jesus, really, uh, turn into a different gospel. Not from men or by man. He is telling them he is equal to the twelve. That's what he's doing here. And remember, they added one after Judas, uh, Matthias. They added him in Acts. Luke tells us about that. Uh, he's telling them, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not an apostle just because I talked to the apostles. Just because they, uh, just because I, because I'm metal. Just because uh, I, I take the name. He's telling them clearly that he is uh, both equal to the twelve, but his equality with the twelve comes in the next phrase. I wasn't chosen by men or or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's the next phrase he uses. Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, you, you might think, if we put those two sentences together... Not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. You might could jump quickly to a conclusion that he's saying Jesus was not a man. No, he's not denying Christ's humanity here, but he's making it clear that Jesus is more than just a man. Now he's gone from defending himself in his greeting to uh, defending the, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ in his greeting. This is why preachers can talk for 10, 15, 20 minutes about two words. Because the, 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 especially Paul, they rarely, if ever, wasted words. There was a reason why they said the things that they said. So, Matthew, if you're trying to get that off the screen, that's this projector over here. That's, yeah, the, the one that says warming up, that's this projector. Pointing that direction. Um, but I don't think it matters. I think we can, we can see. Um, so he's telling that Jesus is, is more than just a man. He's actually divine. And he is divine in order to save. Uh, I, I'm not an apostle, he says, by men or man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. His divinity is necessary. Jesus could not save us if he was just a man. Uh, Jesus could not save us. I won't say could not. I will say that it, on this side of the cross, it does not appear that it would have worked if Jesus had been just divine. Because a man had to, had to live a sinless life. Had to, had to pay a penalty he did not owe. And no human could do that. No, no human human could do that. But he also had to be God. Because one person dying for everybody doesn't work. It, there's, there's not enough... The, 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 the divinity dying, sacrificing, is what saves everybody. Uh, the, when, when God puts on flesh and, and dies on the cross, when the divine dies on the cross, there's enough for everybody to go around, right? Because he's infinite. His goodness is infinite. His, his, his power is infinite. I might could die for a few people or one person. Number one, I'm, I'm not going to be perfect when I do it. But number two... I, I sacrifice me. It doesn't save the whole world from anything. Uh, it just, you know, saves a few people from, I don't know, putting up with me or something. Uh, but that's that's about it. So the divine, the divine had to die. The the human had to die in order for it to cover all of the needs of the sacrifice. Now, if you're confused and say, Michael, that's that's really hard to understand. I will agree with you, and and we'll move on. So. Uh, again, by Jesus Christ and God the Father, what this passage, this phrase also shows us. And y'all, if y'all have a question, stop me. I'm trying to make sure we can get through verse 2 tonight. But if, you know, if you raise your hand, remember where this is supposed to be informal. Um, so, 
call me out for if you want me to, if you want me to answer something else. So not only does it show that uh, he's not denying humanity or, or, or showing that he's divine to save, it's also showing the unity of the Father and Son. This is uh, where Greek, well, this is where grammar comes in. Even in English, you can see that there's one preposition, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, you, you read over that, you might not notice it. But if, if, if the two were supposed to be separate, Greek grammar would have said, but by Jesus Christ and by God the Father. The prepositions would have separated the two. But because Paul used one preposition for both Father and Son, that unifies it. It's also interesting to note that Jesus comes first. That's a little... Remember, remember, I've told you before, both in Greek and Hebrew, but especially in Greek, word order does not matter as far as grammar is concerned, but word order definitely matters as far as emphasis is concerned. So the fact that Paul puts Jesus first here is not putting him greater than God, but he is very definitely putting him equal to God. So there's a, a statement again of the divinity of Christ here. Uh, he's showing no distinction between the two. And so by doing that, by showing no distinction, he's telling them that there's a unity in his call. He is called both by Jesus and by God. If, you, if, if he was writing to the, to the Jews and, and they might put more emphasis, especially what was going on in Galatia, uh, the, the emphasis on Judaism and God. He's saying, look, I'm called just as much by God that you're putting your emphasis on as I was called by Christ because they are one and the same. A huge statement of the unity of Jesus and, and, and the Father here. And then his next phrase, so I'm not called by men, uh, uh, for, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This, too, is a huge, huge statement because he is now he's probably preached for a long time. I'm going to tell you this. I was going to tell you this later anyway. uh, But this is his first surviving letter. Best we can tell. Well, I'll I'll talk briefly about why that is. Why we know that. But that's uh, not that important. But he's uh, for him to in his first letter be declaring without a doubt no qualification, no no second guessing that G- God has raised Jesus from the dead. He is making clear who caused it, who, who did the work, and making equally clear that Jesus had actually raised from, uh, rose, risen from the dead. Uh, it was proven to him on the road to Damascus. Uh, he, he made it clear, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting, or Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Who are you that I'm persecuting? I am Jesus, the one that you are fighting against. He he knew. What's what's crazy? I don't know if it's crazy. If if God had shown up on on the road, and uh, Paul would have thought, you know, this is kind of a Moses moment for him, because he knew all about Moses. Uh, he'd have thought it's kind of a burning bush or, or uh, on Mount Sinai or a tent of meeting, something. I mean, he, he would have had something to compare it to. But for him to immediately, when he sees, I don't know what he saw. You know, we're, we're not even told. He, he saw a light and everybody around him heard thunder. And that's all we get. But that was enough for him to believe This isn't just an angel of the Lord. This isn't just somehow God visiting me. When he says, I'm Jesus, Paul believed it. Um, And that is what makes this statement, I think, one of the things that makes this statement so huge. That Paul was basing this. Now, the the years he spent in the desert, he was learning from Jesus. That's what we understand he was doing. That's part of what he tells them later on. I didn't learn from men. I learned this straight from the lips of, of Christ himself. Uh, for these years I spent in the desert. But for him to immediately change his mind based on this one interaction. I just, can you imagine what the interaction was like? And then it changes his entire trajectory. I mean, he is done. 
he met Jesus. I mean, that's when we talk about our Damascus Road experience. He, he was done with Judaism as, uh, as the requirement. He, he was done with the, the sacrifices. Now, it's, it's pretty clear that Paul still participated in a lot of uh, the, the festivals and those kinds of things. But never again did he believe that those had any bearing on his salvation. It was this moment and this moment only. So when he tells them he raised him from the dead, he knew that because of that experience on the Damascus Road. That was all he needed. Whether he'd had the years in the desert learning from Jesus or not, he knew it at this point. So, why do I tell you all this background and we've just barely gotten through uh, verse 1? First of all, we need to see that change is real. Salvation is powerful. Exactly what I just said about Paul, that that one experience on the road. And he could have written it off. I mean, there, there were plenty of, of folks who saw miracles regularly and still never trusted Christ. I, I mean, the, the, the Pharisees would say, show us another one. Do another trick. Do another party trick, Jesus. And he said, you know, I've, I've, I've done it. You you, you see creation. You, you, see, you see all this stuff. Another trick's not going to do it. Another miracle's not going to do it. This one event changed Paul. And it changed him completely and forever. So when we say we cannot change, there's a, a passage in the Bible that says, Bull. Okay, it says, maybe not exactly like that. But it says, yes, you can. Because Paul changed. In an instant, Paul was never the same after that Damascus Road experience. So change is possible. Salvation is very real. It is very powerful. Uh, Learning this about Paul, we see that his teachings are reliable. He's making it clear that he got this information straight from Jesus. Again, he's going to talk about this later on in Galatians, how he didn't learn it from anybody else uh, later on in this chapter, as a matter of fact. He got this information straight from Jesus, which leads us to the next. So his writings were revealed. And this is important because there are plenty of people today that will say, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Only Paul did. So homosexuality is okay because Jesus never talked about it. Paul, he wasn't talking about what Jesus talked about. Well, Many things wrong with that statement. Uh, I mean, we can begin with the fact that Jesus said what marriage was and what marriage wasn't. And when he said what it was, it never included same sex. Um, he was clear that all the way from creation, how it was supposed to be. So, so that argument's gone. But what this tells us is that Paul's teaching, Paul's writing, is not a divergence from Jesus. It is an explanation uh, of Jesus, it is a further development of Jesus. It is uh, taking what Jesus said and applying it now to existing churches. We, we have to remember that uh, Jesus was speaking; his, he was bringing in his his kingdom, his his body of believers. We talked about that a little bit in one of the sermons months ago. Uh, that that Jesus was doing something different than Paul was doing, or, or the other letter writers. Jesus was getting them from Judaism into this, I believe the phrase we used was a messianic community. Paul was dealing with not just a messianic community, uh, a group of folks being called to this new thing, but what had solidified and, and taken root. And now he's writing to not just messianic community as is used throughout the Gospels, but church to the churches, Paul says in his earliest existing letter, to the churches of Galatia. Different group, different purpose, but same author. It was all Jesus writing this. It was Jesus writing it through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or it was Jesus writing it through Paul, but it's still the same Author. So that's why we spend so much time on verse 1, talking about Paul. Now we get to move to verse 2. And we ask the question, who were the Galatians? Now verse 2 also talks about um, all the brothers who are with Paul. Um, typical, Fairly typical of, 
of how he wrote. This was probably Barnabas that he was, at least Barnabas that he was talking about, maybe Timothy, and we'll see why that's the case here in uh, uh, just a couple of minutes. Who are the Galatians? Well, they were a result of Paul and Barnabas's first mission. Uh, the first missionary journey took them through this area. And one church was Timothy's home church. That's where they found uh, the, the uh, Yahweh follower of uh, Timothy and his mom and grandmother. And apparently the dad was Greek and pagan and didn't follow. Uh, uh, did I uh, skip? Oh, I'm sorry. I did skip one. I skipped a slide. Pat's right and I'm wrong. Who are the Galatians? We'll get to who, where they were in a minute. minute. Uh, they were named for the, the Celts of Ireland. Uh, your cousins, how many of you have Irish ancestry? Your cousins, two or three times removed, um, could have been in the churches in Galatia because they were Celts that moved down from Ireland through France and they became Gauls. That's just a, a version of the word Celts. We say Celts over here, at least when we're talking about basketball, Celtics. Um, but came down from Ireland, Great Britain, France, and then worked their way down into what is Asia Minor, Turk, northern, uh, northern Turkey. Um, that's who we're talking about. Galatians, G-A-L, is a variation of G-A-U-L, the Gauls. They are ethnically diverse. It was a whole bunch of different folks. They didn't just look like one, uh, one group. It was many different languages, many different uh, skin colors and, and uh, folks. They were, they were pagan, uh, absolutely pagan. Uh, they, they were not Jews. I mean, there were probably enclaves of Jews in these towns, but they were not, there weren't many, and that was not the dominant uh, religion. Uh, this area was large cities and small towns. I mean, it was just typical of what you would think. You have your big cities and small towns in between that you travel through and stop as you went to the big places. And the people that he, particularly that he is writing to, are just regular folks in new church starts, and it would be South Central Turkey. If you're interested, you can look up all sorts of information, and you can read about the discussion of, of whether it was northern Turkey or southern Turkey. Have fun. Uh, I read it, and it doesn't matter. Um, it has a little bit of bearing on the date, but it really doesn't matter. So, who are the Galatians? The next one I already that I started when I went the wrong direction on a piece of paper. Uh, they were a result of Paul and Barnabas's first mission. Uh, they were that's where Timothy was. Uh, it was written in 45 to 50 A.D. That uh, puts us at the earliest of any of his writings. Um, there are a number of clues in Galatians as to why we think it's that early. The interesting thing is there are just as many clues that would put it a little bit later. I mean, it gets convoluted when you start reading. We're just going to go with 45 to 50 because that covers it. The in one of the really interesting things about Galatians is that it's an outline to the letter of Romans. An outline, by outline, I mean it's, it's a, a shorter version. Uh, or, or better yet, it's, it's the first, it's the rough draft. It's, uh, I'm working on my dissertation. Actually, I'm not. I'm working on my prospectus. Your prospectus is the paper, the 30-page paper that tells your professors what your 130-page paper will be. That's the prospectus. That's kind of what Galatians is. In the, your prospectus, you tell the chapters and you tell your research and all that kind of stuff. Galatians is his prospectus, his rough draft, because it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. But if you read a little section of Galatians, a couple of verses, you can very, very often, way too often for it to be accidental, find in Romans three times as much information where he expands on what he wrote in Galatians, sometimes using the same phrasing within that expansion. Over and over and over, he does this. Uh, so if you want to know what Romans says, well, a good place to start is Galatians. Read it first, and then go and read Romans, and you get it reinforced, and you kind of get Paul's commentary on what he wrote in Galatians. Uh, and as we talked about the Galatians... 
uh, were in trouble. There were no warm words. Uh, he, he, he was, and it wasn't just reprimand, though there's that feel to it. It is concern. It's him seeing where the churches in Galatia are headed and him wanting to stave it off before it gets too far. So he, he doesn't take time for the soft, mushy parts. He's just getting to the root of the problem. Uh, what they were doing was they were replacing freedom of grace with the yoke of works. That's what he's attacking here. You, they, they are deciding that they need to do something. They're being told, they're being taught that in order to be Christian, you have to do things to be a good Christian. Uh, and Paul's going to refute that throughout the book of Galatians. And, and uh, the celebration is, if you go in Acts 16, 5, you can see that the churches in Galatia changed because of this letter. There was a positive result. Uh, they, they heard it. They took it. They read it to the churches. A bunch of churches probably spread over one letter to a whole bunch of churches. And it changed. Uh, it changed them. So what? Well, three things we understand uh, when we dig deeper on who uh, the Galatians were. And you should do this anytime you go to a new book in the Bible. Get a commentary. Uh, commentaries are your, your simplest, your, your, can be your simplest, easiest way to understand a book more deeply than, than you had. You, now, some of you have study Bibles that will tell you some background to the book. Those are good, too. Uh, you don't have to get a big, thick commentary with all the Greek. The, the, the best commentary series for um, most understandable that you can get some that are half in Greek, and I, I skim those at best. Um, but the one, New American Commentary, it was put out by... Uh, Broadman, Holman, I think is the publishing arm. They have books on, uh, commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. Very understandable. So anytime, and even, even if you don't go that deep into it, you don't get a whole commentary, do some background information. Find out where they were writing. Find out what they were uh, writing about. Find out why they were writing. Because one of the first things we understand is authorial intent. Authorial intent is very possibly the most important uh, part of interpreting the Bible. Authorial intent. What was the intention of the author? Every time I preach, I take a passage and I apply it to where I believe we are as a church or maybe you are, or a group of you are, or our country is, or whatever is as, as individuals or as a group. We apply it. We can only apply Scripture when we understand what the author intended behind it to begin with. If you don't, you have some incredibly outlandish interpretations of Scripture. You get things like uh, health and wealth gospel, saying that you can uh, declare your, your the, you can walk down the street and declare that house is yours, and in three months God's going to give it to you. You can get people that will preach that because they're taking a couple of words out of a passage and they are ignoring and avoiding the author's intent. The author never intended for you to get that out of it, yet they're taking it out of uh, context and doing it. So we always begin with authorial intent. There are plenty of people, scholars, that will tell you that has nothing to do with it. You might uh, be familiar with um, strict constitutionalists for our country. And then you have those who would say our Constitution is a living document. It was intended to, to change over time and to, to morph into what was necessary uh, or what was needed by the culture. You might then, if, if I'm telling you authorial intent matters, then you might accurately peg me as a strict constitutionalist. What did Jefferson and Adams intend when they wrote the Constitution? Not what do we wish it said. We don't go to the Bible and say, hmm, what do I wish it says? Or what do I wish it says? Yes? Yeah, I think that's right, grammar. Um, what do I want it to say? There we go. Uh, we go to the Bible and say, what does it say? What is it saying? What did the author intend? The second thing we see about authorial intent is that we begin to expect certain things 
uh, when they're writing to a particular group. Uh, in this example, he's writing to a church he started. This was These were his churches. He had been there at the beginning. He knew what they had preached. Take the time someday to read Galatians and then Romans. Galatians, he had been there. Galatians, he started those churches. They were his babies, so to speak. The church in Rome, he had never been to when he wrote them. The tone is different. The, the, what, how he says things. Remember he, Galatians, Romans, he says a lot of the same things. But one of the reasons he expands on those things is because he hadn't been there. He, he doesn't know for certain that they were taught this. He only says this to the Galatians because he knows he said this back here when he talked to them. So I can condense it and say, you know what I said. The Romans, he doesn't know what was said. So he takes that and expands on it. Then, of course, his tone is different because he's writing to people he's never met or mostly that he has never met. So when we understand the author's intentions, we, we receive, we read that letter differently. We receive the teaching of that letter differently. Uh, the second thing we understand is we understand... Huh? Oh. Uh, we understand how we can serve. Sometimes she tells me I'm... You know, doing stuff wrong, or I said something wrong, and I, she sneezed, or something. And I thought I'd done something. Um, we understand how we converge. We understand our similarities to the, the the people he's writing to. If we understand Galatia and the people, then we look at it and say, okay, how are we like that? Uh, for example, we are diverse. Now, the reality is, first sulfur, we're not as diverse as we should be. Uh, we all uh, need a tan. Um, there are people in our town who don't look like us who might think they can't come here, and we don't want that. We could be more diverse. But age-wise, age uh, socioeconomics, uh, there are ways that we are diverse, and that's good. We need to expand on that. Um, so we relate to that with these people. Uh, we re read about the Galatians, and we see that they are deceivable. They, they were able, the right person come along saying the, the, the right things in the right way, and they're going to believe it. Wow, that, I hadn't thought about it that way. And, and we have to be careful because we will do that too. I will do that too. If you don't believe me, look at, if you're on social media at all, then you're familiar with the phrase fake news. We are gullible. We will see something, and because it's in print, and because it has a website underneath it, we think, well, it must be true. I've done it, and I, I'm, I try to be very careful about anything, any information that I share before looking it up. But I've done it. I've had to go back and say, my bad to people who might have read my stuff. That was a complete lie. I didn't realize it. I, I shared it, and I shouldn't have. We are all deceivable if it sounds good, or if it feeds our preconceived notions. And we get that way in politics very quickly. If the right news channel says something, we believe it because we trust that news channel because their politics follows mine. But if a different news channel says it, we don't trust it. And I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong in that particular instance. I'm saying if people feed our preconceived notion, we are much more likely to believe it than if it doesn't follow our preconceived notion. So... Uh, we are just like them. We are often legalistic. Now, this legalism, we, we, we kind of use more this term to mean a lot of things for us. But legalism, in its, in its essence, is you have to do something to keep your salvation. That's legalism. I'm saved, but not if I still do this. I'm saved... But only if I do these things in order to prove my salvation. Paul is fighting strongly against that. The Judaizers, that's the word we're going to learn as we move through this, were telling uh, the, the, the folks in Galatia that you had to do certain things, circumcision being one of those things, in order to be a Christian. You had to be a Jew first before you could become a Christian. And Paul, the Jew of Jews, is saying, ooh, uh-uh. That is not what it's supposed to be. And he wrote, writes a letter uh, ex explaining that. So that's our definition of legalism as we go forward. 
adding something to our salvation, doing something in order to keep our salvation. And lastly, we see that the Galatians were changeable. And hopefully we are too, that that this is where we converge, that when Paul speaks directly to our situation, we change because of what the Bible says. We saw it with Galatians, Acts 16, we see that they had changed, and then hopefully this is one place where we converge. The third and last thing uh, uh, that uh, we understand when we look at the Galatians deeply and see where we see about the people is we understand how they heard. We, we understand uh, how we converge, but now we know how they heard what Paul said. Nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody. Raise your hand if you like to be fussed at. I didn't think so. Nobody likes to be rebuked, and yet that's what Paul is doing. If he's doing it lightly with kit gloves, and I don't believe... By the way, is it kid gloves or kit gloves? K-I-D? Okay. I've, I've never known. I've heard it said two different ways. I still don't know what it means, but I just want to say it right. Okay. Uh, it, we want to be handled with uh, kid gloves. We want to be told it's uh, you know it's uh, going to be okay and, and all this stuff. And we don't like to be rebuked. And, and we can guarantee ourselves that when the overseer, when the preacher of these churches in Galatia got up and read, Hey, guys, we got a letter from Paul. Really? Really? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, Paul, an apostle from men or by man, but not by men, from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. And they're saying, wow, Paul wrote us a letter to the churches of Galatia. Hey, that's us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. And they're thinking, that man, he, well, he knows how to turn a phrase, doesn't he? Uh, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this previty, present evil age. We believe that about Jesus, don't we? According to the will of God our Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The people are amen. And that is so right. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And they knew the letter was not going to turn out the way they had hoped. They wanted to hear about his travel. They wanted to hear how it was nice in Hawaii. They wanted to hear how the kids were doing, how Mama had made the best apple pie ever. And they wanted to hear all these things. And Paul didn't get into any of that. I'm amazed that you have left the gospel, is what he is telling. Yeah, nobody likes to be rebuked. So we, we have that in, in, in uh, we understand that they heard that way. Uh, they were young Christians. These were likely confused. We can be confused as old Christians. We, we, we can, again, preconceived notions or, or something like that. We are deceivable. We can be confused. But we understand they were young Christians, maybe, maybe a year or two old as, in their faith, being led by people who are also a year or two old in their faith. Paul may have left some folks behind, as we see that he did throughout his missionary journey, but they wouldn't have been much more experienced than the folks in Galatia. And then, so, it leads to this third little point on how they heard. They were attempting to grow and learn apart from the original. The original. Paul wasn't there anymore to teach them. They didn't have a complete New Testament to go to. And say, well, how is the church supposed to work? Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, Paul wrote to Colossae, these and these things. They had their Old Testament scriptures. But it didn't lay out those questions that they had. So, when somebody came in and so, evilly, uh, so easily uh, bewitched you, some of your translations may say, um, we can understand why. They were struggling. They were looking for answers. Somebody came along that said they had the answers, and Paul had to say, Nope, guys, you've been following the wrong one. You've been listening to the wrong things. Listen to me. Go back to the Scripture. And that's what he does. Paul, in his letter to Galatians, goes back to the Scripture, back to Old Testament, and says, This is, this is what we learned. This is what we know. This is, these are my credentials. Now, it is a gospel of freedom, a gospel of grace. Don't let those Judaizers, those that would tell you otherwise, convince you. So we see from the Galatians that we uh, have our opportunities to, to fall away. Uh, I don't mean from the from the faith, but I mean to to veer in our and in, in who we are listening to 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 veer from the orthodox faith. It's not hard to do. It's really not, and we're gonna we're gonna see that. 
Paul uses a great analogy, and I'm going to end with this, and I don't want to spend too much time on the analogy because it gives away the surprise. We have in mind that if we veer from the gospel, if, if we, we turn from the gospel, we have in mind that the gospel's there, and if we turn from the gospel, we must be going this direction. Paul tells us that if the gospel is there, and you turn there, now that was subtle, but if you turn that little bit, you might as well have turned all the way around. If you veer from the gospel ever so slightly, you'll be you'll leave it all together. The the the, the picture of that, and I, I can't remember. I've I've tried to find this before. Uh, a ship leaving uh, England pointed with the intention of going to New York. If it changes its direction by one degree. I can't remember where it ends up. I want to say it's South Carolina, somewhere around Charleston. One degree. It didn't look like much in England, but by the time you got to the States, it was way off. That's what Paul's saying. If you listen to the deceivers, the ones who will tell you the gospel is not enough, that's where you'll end up. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be a good study. I enjoy Galatians. Uh, Hopefully we all learn something. And more than that, we are shored up in our faith as he was attempting to do with the churches in Galatia. Any questions? Don't ask past one or two because I'm not going to talk about it yet. Nope. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that in our, in our confusion, in our, our, our deceivability, uh, in our... Not in our lostness, but in, in, in our wandering minds of, of, as, as we work out our faith. Uh, with, with fear and trembling, we work out our salvation, Paul says, says elsewhere. We thank you that you have sent people to correct us. You, you, you sent, we, we've got everything we need right here. And Lord, I pray as we move through Galatians that it will... Uh, it will speak to us that you know, not everything is going to directly apply uh, to where we are uh, in a one-to-one correlation. But God, show us where it does apply, where we are uh, in some way matching what the, the Galatians are going through. But, but even if that's not the case, Lord, we know that when we spend time in your word as a group of believers sharpening each other, we grow closer to you. We grow closer to each other. We pray that we will internalize your word. And God, if nothing else, and I think there will be a lot more than this, but if nothing else, we see the glory of the salvation through grace that we have. That you did not require sacrifice and mutilation and and those sorts of things in order to be saved. You merely said, follow my son, believe on him and you shall be saved. And that that is a joyous statement right there. We thank you for what you have provided for us. Thank you. For this church, thank you for what you are going to do in our church. And we pray that you would use us in a mighty way to spread your gospel in sulfur and around the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.